Very Bad Wizards is a podcast with a philosopher, my dad, and psychologist, Dave Pizarro, having an informal discussion about issues in science and ethics. Please note that the discussion contains bad words that I'm not allowed to say, and knowing my dad, some very inappropriate jokes. Game, recognize game, and you looking kind of unfamiliar right now. Look, waiting. Welcome to Very Bad Wizards. I'm Tamler Summers from the University of Houston. Dave, it's 2023. I believe I ask you this question every new year. What are your New Year's resolutions? And I think I'm usually pretty down on resolutions. But this year, uh, you know, the reasons I'm down is because by, by January 31st, like I never follow through on anything. So I know myself, like, so I'm pretty down. But this year, I'm going to give it the, the old college try, as okay. what people say. Um and I'm going to really try to read more books. Uh, like, I feel like I just have let my book reading fall off so badly. I used to, I just used to love reading a lot more. And I don't know, I don't know why. I think it's the digital age. But I signed up for a Goodreads account. And I'm, I'm genuinely going to try. I'm going to aim for 50 books. Which Wow. Uh, like Lex although, Friedman. I, like Lex Friedman. Although, I will say. <laughs> I counted the Seneca book that we read for today as a book. So, <laughs> yeah. What are you going to read? Like, what are? Do you have a fifty? No, fuck, no way, not at all. I'm going to read the Deadwood Bible. That's one yes. of them. Yes, <laughs> nice. Thank you. Uh, Tamler got me uh, the Deadwood Bible as a gift. Yes, uh, and I have a few. I have a few, uh, but I'm open for uh, recommendations, especially n- good nonfiction books. Um, like, uh, yeah. I think I'm going to start with the finally read the Douglas Hofstadter I'm a Strange Loop book. Oh, good. Yeah. yeah. And then we can do an episode on it if you like exactly. it. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. What about you? Um, you know, I'm usually more upbeat on resolutions, and um, but I do them by month. That was like uh-huh. a tradition we started in my family like uh, about seven idea. or eight years back. So you, to make it more manageable so that like yeah. – um, but, you know, they're boring. It's like, uh, uh, improve my core. And they're also more <laughs> unspecific, you know, like they're, they're too unspecific right now to really have crystallized into something. Um, you know, I think I'm in good shape and I get a good amount of exercise, but I could use a stronger core. I don't know. Right. People talk about that, right? Like, oh like, yeah, for sure. That's and everything, I, right? It always sounded like like the kind of people who buy their pants at Lululemon speak right. that way. But, <laughs> exactly. But it's <laughs> or but like it's, people who love the Stoics. That's <laughs> right now, thing. my my back is completely shot from like traveling with luggage and stuff. Yeah. So I, I also need to strengthen my core. Yeah, like it just like the older you get, you just start like to do the things you want to do, like play tennis or swim. You just need it or else you're just going to get be constantly injured. I like just taking my fucking I I took my dog for a walk. Charlie, this was about three weeks ago, and he does this annoying thing where he 
he he I, I have him off leash in the neighborhood, but there's this two blocks away from where he does this, there people put out bowls for cats so that cats can come and eat them. Mm -hmm. And so he strategically, this is the kind of dog he is, he strategically (laughs) takes a shit like at the end of this block and then while I'm picking it up, he takes off. He's like almost 14 <laughs> years old. Like he's a month away from being 14, but he has figured this out that if I, he takes <laughs> off, like it's dark, like it's hard to see him, he will he will be able to get to the cat food thing before I find him. So I put him on a leash because I had figured it out by then. And I just wrenched my back trying to put on his leash that when I, yeah. like I had to call my daughter to pick me up. And then like I spent like an hour and a half on the floor because I couldn't get up. Like there was just no way that I could get up. And I was like, all right, <laughs> New Year's resolution. Strengthen my core. Strengthen my core. And get some Lululemon pants. Yeah, I have a, like in <clears throat> the weird, I have a Lululemon uh, gift card, which. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's comfortable clothes. <laughs> really. Yeah, no, my plan is to go to Lululemon, buy like $130 sweatpants, and then kill myself. That's the. <laughs> I want to kill myself because I'm starting to see Instagram ads for like men over 40, improve your flexibility, <laughs> like that kind of shit. Like, uh, yeah. All right. So today, we are going to talk about the Stoics. This was something that a while back our Patreon uh, listeners s- voted in as the topic. Stoicism won. I don't know why we haven't done a full episode on Stoicism before, but... Um, I, I think it was just a problem of trying to find what text to read. Yeah. So we just settled on one. You picked one, I guess. Oh, but wow. You're just throwing me under the bus. <laughs> well, we couldn't no. do all of the meditations or right. all of Epictetus. Or, um, so anyway, we picked, this yeah. was a suggestion from a listener, Seneca's On the Happy Life. Yeah. And it's an interesting one. It's a little different than a lot of the other Stoic um, work that I've read. So I'm excited to talk about that. But first... We are going to, do you have like your, like, do you have a new beat to this or just some kind of like intro sound effect? Everything is my fault. All right. Should I start with mine? My guilty confession? Okay. Uh, This requires two little pieces of background that, that might be obvious, but bear uh, repeating. So listeners might know uh, that uh, the origins, in fact, of your joking about me being Kantian, I think just come from the fact that I'm such a champion of reason. I, I like rationality. I, am, uh, I want to live my life according to the principles, essentially first principles of logic, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and the second thing that people may or may not know is that I was born in Argentina. Half my family is from Argentina. <clears throat> so... I've already told you this one, but I think you're one of the only people I told. Much to my disappointment and shame, while the World Cup was happening, uh, you know, happens once every four years. Argentina had been trying to win and getting so close for like 36 years. We lost the first game to Saudi Arabia, but then won every other game after that. I found myself engaging in shameful, superstitious behavior. Just rational, just, <laughs> normal, like sports watching baby. I can't. Yeah, I can't even know. It's terrible. I can't even explain it. <clears throat> I don't. I still don't have any reasons <clears throat> that I can give for why I did it. I don't believe that I believe in it. It's just, and this is all it was. Like I didn't have. 
I think my jerseys, whatever the normal sports people would do, like wear the team's jersey, like they were in storage. So I did this stupid thing where I I got my Apple Watch and I put two different bands, one light blue and one white to match the colors of the Argentinian flag. And I wore it on my right wrist. And since they won, I couldn't fucking, every morning I woke up, I was like, I got to <laughs> put it back on. And they kept winning, Tamler. They kept winning. And it was like, I was <clears throat> under just like, it was as if like a witch had put a spell on me. Like, I don't, I don't know. I, I, yeah. There's an easy explanation for this. And I know this because like, we've been doing this for over 10 years and I've never seen you this passionately connected <laughs> to an outcome of an event as you yeah. should have been because it was incredible. And by the way, yeah. congratulations for like, yeah, winning you. one of the freaking greatest sporting uh, events oh, that I've ever so seen good. in my whole life. Incredible. It made me happy yeah. to hear you say that. Yeah. Thank yeah. you. Cool. We'd been texting throughout a lot of the tournament and like you actually cared about it. And once you care that much, <laughs> then of course you're going to start doing what normal sports people do, which is correctly identifying the causal effect that you can have on a, on a game or a match because of what you do. Like it's just, it's just logic. I wonder if the way that it works, you know, like speaking yeah. just, just down to the causality, is that all of the Argentina fans in the world need to do all of their weird superstitions at the same time. And if one of us fails, like then, <laughs> then it ruins it for everyone. <laughs> is that how? <laughs> I mean, I think so. Yeah. Uh, and like, I don't know, maybe it's just a percentage and you don't want to be, uh, like, right, the, yeah. you know, among right. the, like, I, I don't know exactly what the, the physical laws are at play, but, but like phenomenologically, it, it doesn't feel like collective action. It feels like no. you have to put it on. Like it feels you like will it's all have on you. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Totally. Um, yeah, it's a weird thing. We, I mean, we've talked about this. I really do at some level believe it to the point at least where I will get mad at somebody else if they're not doing the thing that we agreed we had to do. Oh, or something fucking like Yoel! Yoel! Fucking what did he do? The, oh, man. At the, a, in the, during the final, during mm -hmm. the final, Argentina was up 2-0. Yeah. And we were in oh, the second half. Oh, you told half. me about this. <laughs> Oh my oh god. Oh my god. And you know, there's a saying in soccer that 2-0 is like the the most tenuous lead that you could have like a, yeah. for, uh, and cuz all they need to do is score one and then it's like it, balls and out you anything can happen. Life. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and so you all text me, "Congratulations by the way." <laughs> oh I, my god. You I remember you told me this. Oh man, I was so mad. And <clears throat> did you, like, are you not soon after not soon afterwards to fucking they scored two goals within 90 seconds. So I know causally, I know that that's why. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So yeah, you did your part. That's how delicate and fragile the whole situation is, is you're coming up with some workaround with the your Apple Watch to and then like Yoel can just fuck it up because and you know that he's a pure rationalist about it too. Oh man, he know? must be. Either that that or because he was in the Netherlands for so long, like he was just trying to like actually fuck me over because because of how we defeated the Dutch. <laughs> anyway, uh, that's a good one. Yeah, and I'm welcome to the world of normal sports. <laughs> it's a terrible life. The <laughs> amount of suffering. The amount of suffering. People think that oh, you must be happy. No, I'm just relieved. Like I'm happy. Like I was happy when it happened, but it's more relief than anything. You know. 
We, I have a faculty member colleague who's a big Arsenal fan, and and he considers it a burden that he yeah. cares so much uh, about the outcome <laughs> yeah. of Arsenal matches. And he says, I would get rid of it if I could, but I can't. So I just put up with it. But he really he doesn't find it fun in any like he just finds it to be. Something like a crossed bear. Uh, yeah, I I feel what he's saying, but but yeah. like at the same time, the the sheer joy when you win and like when all of Argentina was celebrating and you get to feel like part of something like that, like that that just overwhelms any any of the stuff. Like you know, I agree. Um, yeah, it's yeah. like and in fact, in way like something we might talk about in the second segment is yeah. letting yourself be vulnerable to right. uh contingency and fortune has its good side you know that's right and me like possibly an overridingly good side well we'll have to see um all right my guilty confession is more somber yours is like (laughs) should be like a a gilded (laughs) confession actually (laughs) you should be proud of your confession um so I'll take that as you getting me back for the time that <laughs> you gave some heartfelt one. Yeah. And then I was like, I think it's funny when Trump calls uh, Elizabeth Warren Pocahontas. <laughs> so this time, like, this is one I feel bad about. I, like, I think I had it in mind to say one other time. and then, But, like, it involves drunk driving and <laughs> having oh. done it. And having done it more than once, not like a lot, but more than once that, and I I don't mean drunk, like, you know, you've had two, two glasses of wine uh, at dinner or something like that or three, but, but I mean like seriously, like shouldn't be on the road, knew I shouldn't be on the road and like you're aiming, like you're not driving, you're you're aiming. aiming. Yeah. Yeah. And it's just like, when you think about what that could what that could lead to it's just kind of unforgivable and like i don't like i I don't feel like there's anything else in my life where i'm that or i have been that irresponsible at least post like i'd like to say that this was when i was like 18 or 19 but actually i was way better about it then (laughs) (laughs) like it's more like it, it was later and so yeah, I, I, it's it's a strange thing because it feels in some ways like I'm sure it's not even in, like it feels like one of the worst things that I've ever like that I've done. And yet I did it multiple times. And <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know. Like, what do you think about that? How bad is that to have? Like, I, no. could, I could go into a detail like I never hurt anybody. I never uh, I did one time kind of just fuck up my own car by but like it was not even clear that was because i was drunk it was uh it was like in colorado driving yeah. on these roads but uh yeah like what do you think uh, about that how bad it's it? a i mean i am with you like there are times that i know i shouldn't have been driving and and i did and it's like much shame to me <laughs> and i i don't ever do that <clears throat> um but it's one of those weird things where, you know, you, like the deontological rule or whatever, the rule utilitarian rule, like really needs to be like, it doesn't matter that we never hurt anybody, you know, like you yeah. really have to believe that it totally. doesn't matter if you'd never hurt anybody because that's more luck. That's pure yeah, moral luck. Yeah. The counterfactual that like we've escaped, you know, our, our lives is something so terrible that it's hard to, to represent that like constantly when you're making those decisions. So like 
<clears throat> knock on wood, but I, oh my God, man. Yeah. And this is why like the, the rise of Uber is yeah. I think such a good thing. I don't know if there are any stats on whether these th- things have gone down, but like, it's so much easier now. I got scared straight, not that long before Uber became a thing. Like, like there was one time where it was just so bad that, um, and that was it. Like, I, but I think you're right. Like, it needs to be a Kantian deontological, like, just no, uh, hard line, no yeah. You, you just never do it. And however much of a pain in the ass it is that night or yeah. the next day or whatever, you just don't do it. One and the lesson also is if you, I think like, I don't know what the ratio is, but if you take like a certain amount of edibles, uh, it can counteract how drunk you are <laughs> and just find that perfect balance. Is it you know? Caffeinated. Do they sell caffeinated edibles? Uh, so that you could, <laughs> I think it's cocaine you're thinking of, but. Oh whatever. yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Um, should we talk about some favorite things from this past year yeah so we talked about top five but we didn't think we would have time for that so i'm i'm not even gonna say these are my top three but these are three things that i consumed for the first time that i watched for the first time in 2022 um what's your what's your first one um i'm gonna put it might be obvious to some people, but the last season of Better Call Saul mm-hmm. is, is definitely up there for me. Like, I think it wrapped up so nicely, and I think that it showed itself to be, a, uh, I think, a superior show to Breaking Bad. Just everything, they upped their game, and I had a blast watching it. Like, I was very invested in it, so... Yeah, I yeah. didn't. I watched like the first season and a half, liked it, but just never fully could get over the brother. You know. Yeah, you but, should binge it. Because I want to know if if you feel the same way that I do. I I think that their storytelling, their character development, their cinematography, everything is just notched up. I feel like there were some kludgy parts of Breaking Bad that I didn't care for. The other thing that it has that Breaking Bad did have, but that I know you and I both really appreciate, is the patience. And yeah. the non-condescension to the audience, like taking its time to to really tell the story, even if that means long periods of what some people might think is boring. Yeah. And it also had something that like even in the time that I watched it, it had something that Breaking Bad didn't have, which is just a great female character. Like yeah, the, that's true. Kim. Uh, what's oh, her name? Yeah. She's good. Kim Wexler. Um, Kim Wexler. Yeah. And she yeah. reminds me of like, a, I don't know if it was like a Boston, like a like the kind of like working uh, class. Girl. Yeah, well, yeah, just kind of a tough Boston broad, you know, like, <laughs> yeah. and, but in a very like, I don't know, also warm. And she was yeah, she's great. great. She's great. She's great. All, All right. right. Uh, my number three is a show. This is like the new age of television where I hadn't heard of this show a month ago. Never heard of it. And my, you know, Eliza comes home from college uh, looking for a I new know. show to watch and I, I literally looked at a list because we watched 1899, which did yeah. you hear is not getting renewed. I heard it got canceled. Yeah. I'm yeah. kind of glad I didn't invest in it, but yeah. Yeah. So we watched that. We needed something new. And I looked up, I was like, oh, I've, I, I, I've never heard of this, but everyone seems to love it. Babylon Berlin. Have you, you know oh, anything no, about this? Oh, I've, no, I've heard of it. I thought you were going somewhere else with this, but yeah. Where did you think um, I was going? White Lotus. 
Oh, well, I'd heard of White Lotus. <laughs> well, I mean, I don't know, a month. White Lotus, I really enjoyed the second season of, but it's not <laughs> yeah, my top yeah, three. Uh, um, yeah. Babylon Berlin, I've not watched it. I've heard of it, but not that much. I, I remember it was on my list to watch, but I completely forgot about it. It takes place in like late 20s Berlin. It's kind of a spy thriller. There's a, it's One camp of it is the communist element of Germany and Berlin and the Trotskyites versus the Stalinists. So that's one element of it. Obviously, there's the rising tide. You can see it's simmering of fascism, but there's no Nazi element yet, at least in the first season that I've watched. But the thing that's just so impressive and amazing about it is, it, like at every level, the filmmaking is phenomenal. The writing is really good. The performances are down the line great. It's just like, I, I can't believe that there are shows of this quality that are just out there that you might I mean, not know about. It's mind-blowing. Like, well, we've talked about this so many times, but like, imagine when you're a kid, like if one of these per year came around, you'd be mind-blown. Yeah, it, and it just didn't also. Like, there was no, it nothing yeah. like it. It like, was like, you know, NYPD Blue in the 90s or something. And and then the rest of them were good, but they weren't, they, they weren't even at the level of just some really high-quality thing uh, like Babylon Berlin. It's on Netflix. I think there's already been three seasons of it. It's just crazy. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Speaking of great TV, like, my next one, I, I think, is in this category. I, I'm... Mayor of Easttown. Did you, wa did I you did. ever watch it? Yeah. yeah. Um, I, uh, it came out in 2021, but I watched it for the first time this year. And Kate I, Winslet. That, yeah. That Kate Winslet. I didn't think I yeah. would care for it that much, but I, I really liked it. And, uh, I, yeah, I think people should give it a shot if you haven't. Like it's, it's, I, it might depend on what you feel about Kate Winslet, but I think she does a great job. I, I like Kate Winslet a lot. I think she's great in the show. I, I remember just being a tiny bit underwhelmed by it, but thinking that it was really good and was happy I watched it. But uh, I'm surprised that you had such a positive reaction to it. Yeah, it was one of the best shows. Like there were, there were. I, maybe I went into it without that that high expectations at all. She was great. I remember she was great. I remember it had a decent ending. Like it had a fairly satisfying resolution to the mystery. Yeah, yeah, I don't even remember. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. But that's, that's, although that's not that's also part of the times is that you see these shows and uh, no, seriously, like Bell was talking to me about White Lotus season one. I was like, who was in that one again? Yeah, that one, the the show that about Sydney Sweeney and her friend having the drugs and then they're taken away from them and then it's never the same after that. <laughs> I liked White Lotus season two, though. I yeah, it was very thoroughly good. enjoyed it in all the ways I think that you're, you know, that most people did. White White Lotus might have made my list, but you know, it, it was more of a guilty pleasure than anything. But I, yeah. I really liked season two, and with season one, I had this funny feeling where I wasn't that into it, but I couldn't stop watching it. Like I was like, well, I got to watch the next episode. <laughs> like, it, it felt a little trashy. By the way, this isn't on my list for because I just. I, I don't know, like there's only three, but Atlanta seasons three and four, and maybe especially four, is so fucking good. And the fact that people aren't raving about it and, and in fact have, it, like they seem a little it. down on it. They've cooled. Yeah. Yeah. I, I like, it's just mind boggling to me. Like, like I, I get it more with season three than season four, but see, I, I think they're both just totally brilliant. And he's clearly somebody that like that whole team, uh, uh, what's the director's name? Hiro Murai. Murai. 
Hiro Murai, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, and, and him and Hiro Murai, and the, all the performances, they're just so good. Like they're just at the top of their game, and like if they're gonna do something a little offbeat or not what you expect or not what you want, like who gives a shit? It's just like these are people that are just supremely talented, giving you something that is always compelling to watch, and um, I love it. But that's not mine, so I should stop that. <laughs> well, you know, I want to say this, you, you know. I think what happens sometimes um, is when a, when the creative person behind something might feel like they're getting shoved into a category, they yeah. they push out of it. And I think that makes for great art, but it does lead to disappointment. So like, I, I remember The Wire season one, I was like, yeah, this is about some like some good drug shit, some like black yeah. shit, like some, you know, and then like season two yeah. was like, some Greek dock shit. Workers. I was like, yeah, yeah. dock workers, Greek. Like, nah, this isn't what I signed up for. No, I want that second Avon season and ended Stringer up the, and yeah, like, exactly. yeah, yeah, yeah. And, totally. And that second season is now my favorite season. You know? That's totally like uh, <laughs> that. I remember I haven't wa- rewatched it in a while, but on the rewatches, season two just kept uh, climbing in the rankings. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Exactly. Uh, it's the same thing. I think also there's something about Donald Glover where I think people feel like he might have too high an opinion of himself himself. or something. Yeah. Yeah. And so they want to take him down and maybe part of that is because he's black, but I think it's more his artistic ambitions that people think he, you know, like doesn't necessarily hasn't earned or something, you know, like I think he like really thinks he's like David Lynch or um, David Chase or something. And like, I think, I, that's fine. Like, yeah. good. Yeah, yeah. I know. That it's shit a, is. It's sort of dumb to to judge the art by like whether or not you like what they say in interviews. I mean, I get mm-hmm. it. Like, I we all want you know like humility. We value humility, and so I don't care for it when Donald Glover goes and says that he's amazing. Like, I'm like, just yeah. let your art speak for itself. But that doesn't mean it's not amazing. <laughs> <laughs> right. Exactly. So my actual number two is the new Park Chan Wook movie, Decision to Leave which I'm happy people are seeing and people seem to like, and it's a lot of, it's on a lot of top 10 lists, but I feel like it still isn't quite getting as much credit as it deserves because it's a little lower key than some of his other ones like old boy or the handmaiden or the other movies in the vengeance trilogy, but it's not really that low key. And now I've seen it like two and a half times and it's just freaking awesome. Like, it's just so well done start to finish. It's something that sticks with you. You're still thinking about afterwards. You're wondering. You realize that every second of it, you're just kind of glued to the screen. And even if you don't know exactly what's going on or why you're compelled by it. And then when it all wraps, uh, you know, it has a fantastic ending. And Is it a murder uh, mystery? Just, yes, kind of. But it's really about a a, a, a cop who's investigating a, the, a, a woman for killing her husband. Nerd. And, fall, you know, clearly there's uh, some sort of attraction between the two of them. Very kind of consciously Hitchcockian in mm-hmm. the, you know, in, including some direct homages to it. But, you know, he, he has so much of his own style that it's in no way some you know something where you could call derivative or anything like that um, right. it just seems to be a kind of culmination of his art 
in a way that actually for me, The Handmaiden wasn't quite, even though I think that's a great movie, but this just really is. Is it, um, does it top Banshees, uh, Vince Sharon for you? For me, yes, um, which I also really loved and which is an honorable mention. Um, I think it's phenomenal. I'd be surprised if we don't do an episode on Banshees because it's also very much, yeah, you you loved that too, right? Yeah, I loved it too. And I didn't put it on my list, even though it would trump all of the things probably that I just have to, I don't even know if this is part of my official list, but I I have to tell people about this channel because, uh, because I love it so much. So one of the things that's on my list is just a YouTube channel by a guy named Ace Vane, A-C-E-V-A-N-E. And I feel like it just hits every button for me. So it might not be anybody's thing at all, but this guy has given me so much pleasure over the year. Like he's made me laugh my ass off. Ace Vane. A-C-E, it's a YouTube channel. Yeah. He's a, a guy who takes largely old uh, comic cartoons like uh, Super Friends, Justice League, Batman, and he clips them and does voiceovers of like just <laughs> ghetto comedy shit. And it, yeah. it, like I have spent hours watching and rewatching some of these kids. <laughs> he does the voices for all of them. Like, you know, like he makes Wonder Woman kind of like a hoe and like, yeah. uh, and Bruce, uh, Batman's a little bitch. And, <laughs> and, That's very and he also does it to a bunch of other stuff, like to Peanuts cartoons. And, and it's very talented. Like he's just so consistently funny. But I know that it's not everybody's cup of tea because Nikki can't stand it. Um, <laughs> so, so uh, that's the qualification. These are the kinds of things that redeem the internet. Oh know? my like, god! It's uh, I know he's so good. It's like, and the thing is, he doesn't have that many that, like YouTube subscribers, and I think this guy should be up at like millions. Like, <laughs> yeah, it just makes you realize how many talented people are out there. Like, same uh, thing with these I, random TV shows that are just <laughs> like better than any TV shows ever made before, like yeah. 1990. You know, like right. uh, it's just like, and now there's just thousands of these things like it's just like there's so many talented people out there and we just never knew about it i know you know i know it's, i love that wherever this guy it. is from i have no idea but i love that i get to just see his create like his creativity yeah. is just incredible yeah so uh my number one this is one that is from 1975 but i happened to see for the first time this year it's and and really another one where I didn't really know anything about it had had kind had heard the name of the movie but had no real sense of what it was Picnic at Hanging Rock it's an Australian movie directed by Peter Ware um, based on a 1967 novel it's this f- insane movie about some uh i don't know like boarding school in of just girls in uh australia in 1900 and they all go out for a picnic and three school girls and a teacher just go missing um under mysterious circumstances on val this is on valentine's day in 1900 and like i don't want to say anything more about it because a i don't understand it completely and b (laughs) just i think it's really good to go into any movie but this movie maybe more than most like completely blind but it but just put me in a trance it's completely mesmerizing it's it's mysterious 
it just rules. I love it. And like, honestly, I like, I, I don't even know what it's exactly it's about. It's definitely about sex and teen sex and sexual repression, but there's nothing like overt on that way. There's nothing explicit. It just kind of oozes that. Hmm. And I don't know, like there's like this movie uh, completely blew me away when I watched it. And I just couldn't believe here that this is a kind of masterpiece by a guy who is fairly well known. Peter Ware did Witness and The Truman Show and, you know, kind of normal movies. Dead Poets. And then he just did this. What were you Dead, Dead Poets Society. He did. Dead Poet Society. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Like that's kind of unbelievable. That <laughs> the same director uh, did Dead Poet Society and this. The way you describe it sounds very le- like the leftovers kind of vibe. It, uh, it, it has a little bit of the leftovers vibe without, without having the kind of despair and kind yeah. of gloom that the leftovers have. But huh. the mood of it is very exactly that. Huh. Yes. Oh, cool. Yeah. That's, right. I never even made that connection, but that's very good. We didn't um, include anything that we talked about this year. That was no. the one caveat, like you said. Yeah. Um, but just a couple of suggestions. Licorice pizza is on my was on my. List. <laughs> oh, that's uh, so good! I'm so yeah, glad you like that. It's very good. Yeah. All right, let's take a break, and we will come back to talk about stoicism. Today's episode is brought to you by GiveWell.org. When you give to charity, how much impact will your donation actually have? This question can be hard, if not impossible, to answer. Honestly, I have no idea how I would go about trying to answer that question. Most charities can't tell you how your money will be used or how much good it will accomplish. You may know it could theoretically help a cause, but how, or more importantly, how much? If you want to help people living in poverty with evidence-backed, high-impact charities, I recommend you check out GiveWell. GiveWell spends over 40,000 hours each year researching charitable organizations and only directs funding to a few of the highest impact evidence-backed opportunities they've found. Over 100,000 donors have used GiveWell, including a bunch of our own listeners giving hundreds of thousands of dollars to GiveWell over these past years. And all of that has combined to donate more than $1 billion to these organizations. Rigorous evidence suggests that these donations will save over 150,000 lives and improve the lives of millions more. And using GiveWell's research is completely free. They want donors, as many as possible, to make informed decisions about high-impact giving. They publish all of their research and recommendations on their site for free, no sign-up required, and then they allocate your tax-deductible donation, should you choose to make one, to the charity or fund you choose without taking a cut. This past year, I gave to Helen Keller International and providing supplements to prevent vitamin A deficiency. These are all their top charities. They are helping people who desperately need help right now. And if you've never donated to GiveWell's recommended charities before, you can have your donation matched up to $100 before the end of the year or as long as matching funds last. So you can have it matched up to $100. Uh, to claim that match, go to GiveWell.org or GiveWell.org slash VeryBadWizards and pick podcast and enter the uh, Very Bad Wizards at checkout. Make sure they know that you heard about GiveWell from Very Bad Wizards to get your donation matched. Thanks, as always, to GiveWell for sponsoring this episode.
Welcome back to Very Bad Wizards. This is the time where we like to take a moment and thank all the people who get in touch with us, who um, form the Very Bad Wizards community, whether that is emailing us or tweeting at us or joining the subreddit or following us on Instagram or Facebook. Although you're kind of a fringe member of the community if you if you interact with us on Facebook, but that's, that's <laughs> fine. That's, uh, it's your choice. Um, and, uh, if you would like to do any of those things, you can email us at very bad wizards at gmail.com. You can tweet at us at peas at Tamler at very bad wizards. You can join the subreddit, uh, very bad wizards. You can follow us on Instagram at Very Bad Wizards, like us on Facebook, and we would be especially grateful if you would subscribe to us on Spotify and rate us on Apple Podcasts because that is how other people discover us and go on their own journey, their own Very Bad Wizards odyssey. Right, or you could just tell them. To listen to that's true. <laughs> to very bad wizards. <laughs> tell a friend, yeah. and you could also email us to tell us uh, what we got wrong when we uh, discussed your paper, as David Chester did recently. Oh yeah, that was yeah. <laughs> he he I, was the of the voodoo doll task. Yeah, and I just want to give him a shout out because he he's a trooper. He emailed us a detailed uh, sort of discussion about what we he thinks we got wrong. And I know it can't be easy to <laughs> listen to us be uh, jerks about your paper. So we appreciate it. he's a listener. It's funny. Like, we don't have that where we could just be listening to something that uh, we like. <laughs> Nobody cares. Uh, that, that we like. And then all of a sudden, something we do just gets totally shit on. I mean, I suppose, like, for, like weird studies or could take a drive-by at us or something. But they, right. <laughs> But that's like... Right. It's not really going right. to happen, hopefully. Uh, yeah. You know, we're not important enough. So there you go, Dave Chester. You you were important enough that we <laughs> that we chose to discuss you. If you want to support us in more tangible ways, we really appreciate it. Uh, there are a variety of ways you could do that. You can uh, find them if you go to our Very Bad Wizards support page. Uh, just go to verybadwizards.com, click on support. You'll see it there. You can donate to us uh, one time or recurring donation on PayPal. You can buy our swag, uh, T-shirts, mugs, and you can support us on Patreon. If you do that, you'll get a number of extra things um, at the various tiers. At a dollar and up, you get all of our episodes completely ad-free, and you get access to the little compilations of beats that I've made. At $2 and up per episode, you get access to all of our bonus content um, the whole back catalog of, of all of our bonus episodes in our recent bonus content, which includes the audio version of Ask Us Anything that we do monthly and the uh, Ambulators. And if you're not uh, a you know, subscriber to the Ambulators podcast, there's something deeply wrong with your priorities. I, I feel like it's like net. It's officially it's officially better than uh, our regular way podcast. Way better than, than our main <laughs> podcast. It's not even like in the same league. Yeah. Uh, so so yeah, you get access to all that stuff at five dollars and up. You also get to vote on an episode topic, and uh, t you know this episode is an example of the power that you have <laughs> and how it can be abused.
<laughs> and and we use many of the ideas that you give us, not just the one that gets voted on. That's right. We already did the metaphors one. That was uh, that was in the this past group's finalists, I think. That's right. Uh, and at five dollars and up, you get access to uh, all the stuff that I mentioned before, but also to our five-part Brothers Karamazov video, uh, series, a couple of lectures from Tamler on Plato's Symposium, a few lectures from my Intro Psych uh, course. And at ten dollars and up, you get all of that stuff plus the ability to ask us questions for the Ask Us Anything uh, segment that we do and access to the video, the largely unedited video feed. Compelling, compelling cinema, if I do say so myself. Yeah, and uh, we have some good questions coming up for yeah, this next round. So That's right, one's coming up. If you sign up in time, you probably could get one more question in. Uh, so thank you to everybody for all your support. We really appreciate it. All right, let's get to our discussion of Stoicism. Thanks to our beloved Patreon supporters who voted on this for the episode topic. So you want to talk about just like what like our first impressions of Stoicism uh, are? Because I, like, I definitely have more of a connection to it than you do. I teach it. I have lectured on it. And, but I feel kind of a deep ambivalence about Stoicism that it's not even fully clear to me why I'm so ambivalent. It has so many <laughs> things that I would think that I would like. Uh, like it's philosophy, but it's practical. It's very practical. It actually makes a difference. It has so many, so much overlap with like Buddhist philosophy, both at the yeah. metaphysical and at the sort of ethical level. Um, and of course, I'm into that stuff. And it is pretty naturalistic it has some weird metaphysics but not really and and nothing really hangs on the weirdness of the metaphysics and you could certainly read it in a more newtonian deterministic way right and i would think that 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 sort of um buddhist flavor of approaching life without the metaphysics would would attract you to it but maybe now i'm thinking now maybe what actually attracts you to buddhism really is the metaphysics <laughs> it's actually a good point yeah. and and i think it's metaphysics are more worked out and interesting buddhism than right. stoics but also just like what other kind of philosophy has this much of an impact like there's probably like 50 podcasts on stoicism that are you know among the top one percent of podcasts <laughs> like if you look on amazon for like greek and roman ethics um, top like books because I was doing this and trying to find a translation for what we were doing. It's like I don't know, eighty percent about Stoics. So why is that? Like that is that is weird to me. And I remember seeing Stoic podcasts on the top charts, but I never gave it much thought. And then as I was preparing for this episode, I started to see this sort of like uh, I, I think there is a bit of combining ideas of masculinity and of self-sufficiency and like sort of like grin and bear it like military style kinds resilience. of resilience yeah, yeah resilience like who are into stoicism and i was curious you know going into reading seneca because my my knowledge of any of the Stoic philosophers is so minimal like basically this what we just read and what i read of marcus aurelius like way back when i was maybe late high school or early college which in my mind was like cool. I don't remember shit about it. And so, so I was curious what I would find in here. And there is some of that in what we read, but is it this, 
you know what I'm talking about? Like the Navy SEAL kind of the people who listen to Navy oh, SEAL sure. dudes, you know, like that. So first of all, there's like a really good side of that, right? Like J- the James. Yeah, I didn't James mean to sound Stockwell. judgy about it. It's just that flavor. Well, no, no, no. There's a way. There's definitely a way to be judgy about it. I think. Uh, <laughs> I was just saying that, like James Stockwell, famously took a, the work of Epictetus with him to Vietnam and said that it was crucial for his surviving being a POW like he yeah. just uh studied that book and it's what got him through that experience it's taught at all the military academies stoicism and especially i think epictetus and marcus aurelius obviously you know it has that interesting thing where both like the the three most famous at least roman stoics one was a slave one was an emperor and one was a the one we're going to talk about, kind of a somewhat ambitious politician. You asked, why is it so successful and popular right now? It is a very individualistic hmm. ethic, I think, right. is a big part of it. When you see problems in the world, they are problems that you feel like only you can have a real impact on how it affects you. It's not something that you should depend on other people. The whole ethic is that um, you should live in a way that doesn't depend on uh, fortune or things out of your control, and you right. don't control other people. And right. You control your choices. You control your choices and your actions to some yeah. degree. And so that's what it focuses on. I think that fits the condition that we're in right now uh, in a way that makes it useful. Yeah, maybe there's like extra also... <laughs> Uh, push back against what's viewed as like the whiny generations of, yeah. uh, <laughs> as uh sperm gen xers we are more stoic perhaps Definitely. and that's just old people saying this new generation <laughs> yeah. I, you know, maybe with some reason maybe legitimately who knows but yeah. all they do is complain and whine about how they're harmed and <laughs> yeah sometimes i want to throw marcus aurelius at my students (laughs) (laughs) but uh the navy seal thing you're talking about that kind of like it has a bro-ish quality to it as well uh stoicism um and it was funny to see seneca talking about like the effeminate qualities like dissing the effeminate qualities (laughs) yeah but like all that said there's some really beautiful useful great stuff in there and if you want philosophy to actually not just talk about pseudo problems and sudoku puzzles um, <laughs> glorified sudoku puzzles then like you should be applauding it even if you disagree with certain key tenets um, so I, I i have more thoughts about what it is that keeps me from fully, embra- fully embracing it but maybe we should get into seneca a bit. yeah before we get into it can i ask you t- two related questions there is very much a common idea of what it means to be Stoic, and there's very much a common idea of what it means to be Epicurean, and both of them are not quite accurate, right? Yeah. Like, And so can we talk a little bit about the difference between Stoic philosophy and the common notion like of what it means to be Stoic, which is, I think, associated with just being maybe not unfeeling, but at least unex- like not expressive of feelings. It's like a... a very much like a muted response to life but i didn't read that detached yeah uh, and that's not how i read seneca at all i mean a little bit but and i think of all of them 
like Marcus Aurelius has a kind of, there's a kind of pall that hangs over his writings. He's writing the meditations on the battlefield. You know, he's an emperor, a Roman emperor in the t- in a time where the you know the last like 10 emperors have been assassinated or have <laughs> just killed everybody like wantonly uh, you know like that you can understand why there's a little bit of gloom that hangs over Marcus Aurelius in addition to all the like inspiring stuff and and there's a kind of austerity to uh, Epictetus Seneca just seems like a normal person trying to get through life and aware of the kind of contradictions and conflicts and the ways in which the human soul is, I don't know, torn um, in all, pulled in all these different directions and trying and- to just make the best of it. I definitely think we're reading something uh, on the happy life which pushes back against this idea of stoicism in a way yeah. that's healthy, um, that it's emotionless, that it's joyless, that it's just austere but then I think a lot of Stoicism can be like that. And they do say a lot of things like, don't get too attached to your kids. You know, think of your kids like you think of a vase. <laughs> Epictetus has that, you know, like, so when a vase breaks, you don't get that upset. So don't get that upset when your kid dies. The modern champions of Stoicism, like Massimo, what's his last name? Pagliucci. Pa- Pagliucci, yeah. And Ryan holiday um who does the daily stoic podcast like they're very upbeat and almost a little defensive too of this aspect of stoicism but there's a reason why people think that of the stoics it's not based on nothing i think there is a kind of humorless austerity (laughs) to some of their writings and i think you know in contrast to the epicureans there doesn't seem to be a kind of a lightness a kind of enjoyment of life everything seems to be like a project of making yourself a better person right well it's funny because by the way it's pigalucci i just want to correct myself um it's funny that this is called on the happy life um yeah because you know immediately i'm like well did the stoics care that much about being happy like i thought they didn't uh so so maybe as you say it's kind of a different flavor or at least an attempt to focus on a different aspect of what it means to be stoic at the same time marcus aurelius had 14 kids and only like six of them survived so you could and and i think listeners have have said this to us you can understand maybe why you might want to cultivate a slightly different attitude towards something i think both of us think is sacred like you know your relationship with your child because it it wasn't it, it wasn't necessarily expected that the child children would live or that your loved one might die and especially if you're living in the time of the Roman Empire where you just had these fucking insane psychopaths just like wantonly cruel psychopaths running the country so that you might think that you're not at all in control of your fate or right. or the fate of anybody that you cared about like there is something i think that makes sense about cultivating that kind of attitude. But even still, you know, there's something about it that just is a little cold. And (laughs) as much as the modern popularizers will say, no, it's not cold at all. It's about joy and resilience. And I'm I'm never fully convinced by those things. Right, right. And we've talked plenty about like our problem with that whole detachment. But it's true. We have led lives where we can enjoy our attachments in a way that, yeah, I thought the same thing when infant mortality is like 50% or whatever. Um, it does make sense to not get too attached to any one of them. 
All right, let's turn to the essay and maybe just talk briefly about Seneca and his life. Um, he's an interesting figure among the Stoics, kind of a middle ground in some ways in terms of his position between Epictetus and Marcus Aurelius. Did you do any research into his life, his biography? Uh, yeah, I did. I mean, it was pretty fascinating. So he, yeah. he was uh, very wealthy, like yeah. apparently filthy rich, um, and was, uh, I don't know, like rose, rose in the ranks of, in, as a politician, I guess, but, but was a tutor to Nero, right? Yeah. Um, <laughs> of all the things to happen, to have your pupil turn into Nero must not be, <laughs> must not be too satisfying. I mean, he was also like exiled before that. So yeah. he was exiled. Um, Caligula almost killed him, but for some reason decided not to. So, I mean, they were all just, they're constantly um, being assassinated or fearful of being assassinated and then just killing everybody around them. Seneca was Nero's tutor when he was a kid. Yeah. And then ultimately Nero said, you have to kill yourself. Right. And it seemed like uh, Nero was jealous uh, you know, Seneca was apparently very talented, very gifted. He was a uh, very like persuasive. He, he had talents and abilities that maybe you know people were envious of. And you get in this text a lot of the first bit of the text is like "fuck all you haters," like yeah. it's like a <laughs> very much like "stop hating on me, you're all just jealous." <laughs> yeah, there's a defensiveness to it. I think you. Uh, said off yeah. earlier. And I think part of the reason is because he was rich, he was somewhat ambitious. He was working with somebody and teaching somebody who he knew uh, could not have been further away <laughs> from the Stoic ideal. And yeah. he enjoyed a lot of the things that Stoics supposedly turned down their nose at. And I think right. he really did enjoy them more than uh, a lot of other Stoics did. And part of this essay or letter or whatever it is, is trying to reconcile that, you know, yeah. trying to reconcile Stoic teachings with his life and the life of a normal, successful uh, Roman aristocrat. Yeah. Which I like that part. I mean, Did yeah. you read about his death? Yeah. Um, but refresh me. So he... <laughs> He was told, like, he he, he had to kill himself. It seemed kind of dramatic. He seemed like he had a, a flair. Theatrical. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, but it's also, it, it had, like, a dark comedy aspect of it. So he'd been, his hero is Socrates. His second hero is Cato, who also killed himself in, you know, a fairly dramatic way. But Socrates is kind of his ultimate model and he had like the perfect death as described in the Phaedo of you know drinking the hemlock with all his friends around him and Seneca wanted to model that I think legitimately sincerely wanted to model that and so I think he tried to like was, slit his yeah he slit his, his wrists and it, slit and it his didn't wrist. work it didn't work so like he's just bleeding everywhere but he's still alive so then he's like alright that's okay I'm gonna drink poison now <laughs> And he's like Rasputin. He's like, yeah, exactly. <laughs> he drinks poison, still doesn't die. <laughs> and then and then has to go to a steam bath, I guess. And that and finally like finished him a, off. Yeah, like yeah. yeah. It's partly I guess kind of moving, but also like could be in a naked gun movie, you know. <laughs> I know. I think what I read was like he, he was just old and didn't have enough blood circulating. <laughs> like, <laughs> he's like Mr. Burns. 
<laughs> right. But, you yeah. know, it's some, there's something very poignant about that. Like, he's been waiting his whole life. Stoics, it was something we can talk about, but they love to dwell and contemplate death. And right. he really had this hero and model who he, generally, he genuinely thought was, like, the ideal to try to live up to. And he actually does it. Like, he's like, okay, can I, can I write down my will? And then the Nero's people said, no, you can't. And he's like, okay. And so he just does it. And that could, and he tells his friends he doesn't want a burial and everything's going according to plan except that he won't die. You know? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's pretty funny. Um, all right. So let's dive into the text, I guess. Like, can I just start with like, at the very beginning, he says something that is so central, I think, uh, to, to his point, which is that <clears throat> the more you strive for happiness, the less likely you are to find it. Which yeah. I think is just like a d- deeply true thing. Um, and uh, and I was interested in how he was going to deal with that since he's, because it can be paradoxical to, to write a treatise on how to be happy and say like the more that you search for happiness, the less you're going to get it. So what do you search for? Um, but again, I think that's kind of the central point of the book. It, it is. And, but do you find that it's been reconciled? Like, in, well, in, no, in, it's not been reconciled. Like n- reading it, thinking of you, especially it's not reconciled for you because, <laughs> because, why me? because I think this is where he focuses on like reason giving, like motivating you to virtue. I do. I am satisfied with what he says, which is something I truly have come to believe, which is live your life in such a manner that you think you will be a good person and the side effect will probably be happiness, but it might not be. And I think that's okay that, you know, he has this uh, example of planting corn might give rise to flowers blooming, but that's not why you planted the corn. Um, But nonetheless, it's likely to happen that you'll get the flowers. And that's the happiness uh, that I think, you know, when you take a step back and say, well, then why are you writing this treatise? Isn't it to, to be happy? Yeah. So he could have just called it like how to be virtuous and just said, um, but if it's practical advice, I think it's good practical advice. I, I agree with you in the sense that it's good practical advice not to just try to optimize your happiness. Like you have to find things that you do for their own sake, like he thinks, like he talks about virtue that um, will have the effect of making you fulfilled or flourish. You know, this is the kind of eudaimoniac happiness um, that we're talking about. It's not just being like in a good mood. But at the same time, like the way I understand stoicism is it is about how to live a eudaimoniac life. I mean, that it's true that they think virtue is coextensive with that and that they think that um, pleasure doesn't begin to describe what like a happy or virtuous life is, even though pleasure may be contingently attached to aspects of it. But I do kind of think of stoicism as a guide to a happy life. And so you can't just say that the ultimate goal is virtue and pretend that happiness is disconnected with that. Like, it's not just hopefully you'll also be happy. It is. No, this is being happy. Yeah, no, you're right. And uh, it's still unclear what the connection between being virtuous and that happiness really is on his view. 
I'm not quite sure what it is. Uh, like how that's supposed to make you happy aside from just the direct advice about like not you know n- not indulging in pleasure too much and not being a slave to fortune yeah. which i think is like the fundamental tenet of stoicism yeah. as i understand it is you worry about the things that are in your control but anything that's not in con- in your control you make yourself immune to being affected by that in a way that relates to your happiness yeah which isn't the same thing as uh in a way that affects your pleasure and actually one of the interesting aspects of this essay is its focus on what they call preferred indifference things that don't have relevance to whether you're happy or you daimoniac or whether you're good or virtuous but all things considered, you'd rather have them than not have them. Right. Like health, like your family living, being alive, like uh, good friends, like wealth, like money. In this essay especially, uh, there is less biting of the bullet than in other Stoic works that I've read. Yeah. There is a real attempt to reconcile the life of a fairly ambitious politician who enjoys having sumptuous dinners and uh, enjoys the fruits of being famous and well, you know, well respected while at the same time, um, you know, uh, trying to be a stoic. One other thing about uh, Seneca that we didn't even mention is he's like a playwright that wrote some seriously fucked up plays, like (laughs) tragedies that I remember reading this like 10 years ago like a tragedy by Seneca and it was like one of the most disturbing fucked up things that I that I've read you know like that has that kind of Roman Ovid like the the things that these people came up with it goes even beyond the Greeks in terms of just how (laughs) dark and depraved it can be and that's another thing that's like how does that where does that come into his whole philosophy of life did I read right that that Shakespeare's tragedies, some of them were inspired by Seneca? I think so. Yeah. 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 I have no idea. I have no idea. But I will say this, like it is, uh, it is unfair as he points out many times to criticize his philosophy just because he is wealthy. Like what, you know, he's like, what else is he supposed to do? Not like not be wealthy. He has this he section. Where he's, poor, <laughs> <probably>. <laughs> he, he has this section where, where, uh, where he's very much like, am I supposed to give away all my money? Like, what point is that? And then I'm supposed to give it away to people who are going to squander it? Like, no. <laughs> like, you look like you want my money. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> this episode of Very Bad Wizards is brought to you by BetterHelp Online Therapy. You know, I, I truly believe that there are times when we are the better version of ourselves throughout our life. And maybe if you reflect, you can realize that sometimes in retrospect. But when you're not, when you're feeling uh, overwhelmed or when life is bogging you down or you're not showing up in the way you want to, working with a therapist can help you get back to that closer version of, of the good you, the best you. And working with a therapist can help you feel empowered and make you more prepared, better prepared to take on everything that life throws at you. I firmly believe in the power of therapy to help individuals get over major serious mental health issues like severe depression or anxiety, but also to learn things like knowing how to set boundaries or improving your coping skills or time management skills. 
improving the way that you deal with frustration in your everyday life or in your relationships. Not only have I recommended therapy in general to my friends and relatives and loved ones, I've recommended BetterHelp specifically as a solution for uh, now a number of friends and relatives who were going through a troubling time, whether it was because of personal issues or because they were looking for help in their relationship. And every single one of them has told me that they had a wonderful experience, a positive experience with the therapists. So if you're thinking of giving therapy a try, BetterHelp is a great option. I mean, it's just an online service for therapy, and therapy is a good thing. It's convenient, it's flexible, it's affordable, it's entirely online, and all you have to do is fill out a brief questionnaire. You'll get matched with a licensed therapist within 48 hours, but in my experience, a lot sooner. And importantly, you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge if you just simply don't believe that that therapist was a good fit for your needs. So if you want to live a more empowered life, therapy can get you there. Visit betterhelp.com slash VBW today and get 10% off of your first month. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P dot com slash VBW. Our thanks to BetterHelp for sponsoring this episode of Very Bad Wizards. One of the things this essay, I guess it's a letter. It's a letter to his brother, his brother. or something. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, a little short on is the details of what it means to be a stoic. Yeah. And, and also like on what, what it means to be virtuous. Like I wasn't quite sure. Um, you know, aside yeah. from listing a few things. Like, yeah. Like being honorable. Being honorable. Living in harmony with nature. That's but again, I was going to add that amounts to. What does that mean, actually? Because is that just a stoic saying, like to live in accordance with nature? Like, I think I I was reading, you know, about Nietzsche critiquing it by saying, like, how are you supposed to not like live against nature? Um, You know, what does that even mean? What would that like? We're all we're natural beings, so anything that we do is living according to nature. I think it's more not resisting nature, not resisting the fact that we're going to die. Something that you should uh, think about. Not resisting when you when you're sick, you're sick. Don't bitch about it. Don't complain about it. That's just part of living a human life. Is that you're sick, you're in pain, you might face some threats to your safety. Don't uh, fight these things. Don't try to conquer them. Uh, just use your reason. Figure out like what it is that you have control of. And then whatever you don't have control of, you just accept as this is what it amounts to to, to live a human life. Yeah. And don't grind your teeth about it and push back against it. Almost not surrender to it because that sounds too passive, but live in accordance with it and live in the flow of it. This is some of the stuff that it reminds me most of some of the Buddhist teachings, you right. know, because it really is about acceptance and not trying to change the way things are, but figuring out a way to live in harmony with it. Right. So in my translation, it, he says, um, true wisdom consists in not departing from nature and in molding our conduct according to her laws and model. A happy life, therefore, is one which is in accordance with its own with its own nature and cannot be brought about unless in the first place the mind be sound and remain so without interruption and next be bold and vigorous, enduring all things with most admirable courage, suited to the times in which it lives, careful of the body and its appurtenances, yet not troublesomely careful. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Right. It's like a middle way, like a middle path. Yeah, exactly. 
It must also set due value upon all the things which adorn our lives without overestimating any one of them and must be able to enjoy the bounty of fortune without becoming her slave. Um, yeah. Yeah. And, and that's the thing that Seneca emphasizes here, which I like, that a lot of the other Stoics don't. He He's blessed down on pleasure in this, even though he's very critical at times of the Epicurean school. He's less down on pleasure than some of the other Stoics. And so it comes across... I don't know, more human. There's something about Seneca that I feel like is more open to just, yes, there's some good things, like the dice can roll your way and there's yeah. nothing wrong with appreciating that. You know? Yeah, no, I totally agree. I liked it for that reason as well. And, you know, one of the things he says a few times is, and, you know, it's hard to know how much he meant it, but I believed him when he says, you could criticize me and say, but look, you have all this money and all this, like all these pleasures. And he says, well, then take my money away and let's see how I deal with it versus how you deal. With it. <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> and, and, uh, I think he's, yeah. he is really trying to emphasize, take the good with the bad. Um, and you can't make either of them your focus. Um, you, you know, if you, cause if you pick it up, you have to lay it down and it really, I think is deeply wise, but it's, it can sound very easy. It kind of, the thing that's kind of easy to say. Well, especially since there's no real guidance about how to do that. Yeah. In, um, I mean, the idea sounds great. Enjoy the, when the dice roll your way, but be unperturbed when it goes against you. And, right. You know, if people are unfairly criticizing you, if a, if you're just getting exiled for no reason, or if you're, getting uh, told to kill yourself for no reason. Well, you know, it's all it's all good because you have lived a life of virtue and you have trained for this. But what is this training? And the more you get into the details about how are you supposed to not be perturbed when a loved one dies or when you are, you know, close to death, it, it, the things you have to do to get to that place might not be that attractive or conducive to what you consider a flourishing life. Yeah. Am I right to read that one of the things that he's trying to say is that one of the reasons to not indulge or seek pleasure is because, which is the idea that you, if you embrace pleasure, then pain is going to hurt that much more. So like be don't indulge pleasure in that way you'll you're kind of training yourself to also not wallow in pain well you become de i mean we know this right you become dependent on pleasures yeah so if all of a sudden if you just get in the habit like i am of just having a few drinks every night when you come home um uh, then all of a sudden when that when you're not able to do that you're going to be perturbed internally you're going right. to feel like oh i got to figure out how to deal with that i have to figure out you know with any kind of addiction with a, with with phones with even with friendships that are suddenly taken away from you or these are real pleasures that you get from them, but there's a danger of getting too attached to them, too dependent on them, too habitually inclined to indulge in them, that when you lose the opportunity, as can happen through no fault of your own, you will then become unhappy, right. weak. And, and like he says, ferocity is 
born from weakness. So you'll just become a really bad person at that point. When right. you feel weak, when you feel like you're not in control, that's when we're at our worst. Yeah, I like that. So you've built your house on like a foundation of contingency that you have no control yep. over. And yeah, this is why, by the way, no, not November is so difficult. Um. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> uh, and because you're, you know, <laughs> one becomes accustomed to certain pleasures to nutting in November, <laughs> and then all of a sudden, yeah, yeah. yeah um, so, this is like, you know, uh, a while ago in our AUAs and our Ask Us Anything, we were talking about um, our daughters seeking advice from our the, the artificial intelligences created from our uh, transcripts of our episodes. But it got me thinking about the advice that we would actually give our children. And this is the kind of thing that I, like I want my daughter to read this and have it sink in and to, to actually, like, I do feel like so much of the suffering that she has in her life to the extent that she has, she has a very good life, but it is because she's not stoic enough. You know, (laughs) (laughs) like she's dealing with the way life can go is hard when you're young because you haven't had much life, you haven't had much experience, and if you've had a good life at all, it can be a real rude awakening when all of a sudden things go poorly as they're going to, like inevitably. They're bound. If you, they're bound to. If you live long enough, they're bound to. Yeah. But, but so, and this is, the, this is always the issue with stoicism. It's like, well, are some of those dependencies, are some of those passionate commitments to things like also part of what's making life good in the first place you know yeah. uh, and i think that this is definitely one where both things can be true yeah um, yeah i think there's no way like <laughs> it's not true that gen z could be a little more <laughs> stoic <laughs> like that it would do them a little good to be a little more stoic i think um and 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 not just Gen Z, although that's their reputation, but uh, millennials too, and also boomers. Uh, <laughs> that's it. All, th- those that's are the only generations <laughs> that need to be more. No, I mean, like, certainly me. Like, yeah. I, I, I feel that. That's probably, I, I it might even be more true of me than it is of my daughter, honestly, <laughs> if I'm right. being honest with myself. But it, it's also true, I think, it's also true that some of those attachments that you have are part of why life is good in the first place. I know we've said that a lot, yeah. but... Uh, it's hard. I, I, yeah, it's yeah. hard. I, I do think that as I get older and, for instance, I lose more loved ones, um, yeah, or just whatever, you know, the various things that happen in life that don't go your way, um, that I, I feel like I have a better understanding sort of along the lines of what Seneca is trying to say. I, I have a better understanding of what it means to not like how how to still enjoy the things you have and the relationships you have and even the material goods you have without with at least some understanding that at any moment they could all be taken away and like for instance you and I have talked before about well what if you weren't a prof- a professor what if like you couldn't be a professor of philosophy um i i feel like i'd be fine like i i love what i do but I'd find something else to do. And if I could yeah. be that way about everything in my life, um, then yeah. I would feel like maybe I'm not being contradictory by saying don't get too attached. Yeah. Um, I, I agree with you. And especially when it comes to my job or, 
Yeah, maybe less my relationships. Those are the hard ones. The attachment to other human beings is the the thing that I find the hardest to reconcile. Where it's like, no, I really, I'm not gonna. Like, I would really be devastated if anything happened to my daughter. Like, (laughs) and I don't mind that I would be like shattered. Like, you know, in this weird morbid way, would be wrong not to. Yeah, like if you ever think about it, like I don't know if you like me have dark thoughts sometimes. Like, what would happen? If anything happened to, to my daughter, I'd be like, yeah, it might be suicidal. Like, I, and that's okay. Yes, yeah. right. That's okay to be. <laughs> and then, you know, who knows, like, how what would really, we'll hopefully never find out. Yeah. But, like, it feels like I don't aspire to right. shrug it off or even to, because I, I, I think that's unfair to the Stoics to say you're supposed to shrug it off, like, you know, like it is if you lose on a bad beat in right. a poker hand or something like that. But... I I also think in some ways it's not unfair to them and that like that needs to be maybe more directly addressed <laughs> that issue because it's it doesn't it, it's this has always been the issue it doesn't seem like something to aspire to that's the kind of vulnerability that it seems like are part of what constitutes a flourishing life and even a virtuous life yeah. at least the way I understand virtue yeah and and I think, like, as we've discussed many times, like a, a source of meaning. One of the things I wanted to ask you about was, like, how down he seems about pleasure. So there are various times where he just, when using the word pleasure, he describes it as, like, here's an example. Pleasure is low, slavish, weak, perishable. It haunts and homes. It's haunts and homes are the brothel in the tavern. It's... It's weird that the association of anything pleasurable is so base. It, it like really reminds me of like the the hardest core Christians that you know, where it's like anything that is pleasurable is is associated with sin. So that's funny because I did not get that impression with this, and I sometimes do from the Stoics. Yeah. But I actually thought when he's criticizing the Epicureans. He seems to be doing it not in a way that says pleasure is debased and low as much as it cannot be the reason that you do things. It can't be what you structure your life around, which is what, you know, at least in the beginning, he says the Epicureans do. They have they are trying to live a life with that minimizes pain and that maximizes the pleasure. And uh, and that is the wrong orientation to have. And, and the thing that you don't want is to be only cultivating virtue in order to, yeah, to have a pleasurable life. Yeah. But, but, but pleasure in itself isn't bad or even something to turn up your nose at was my sense. You're right. He does say that. But he also says like just to like a, one sentence later, he says, you will find pleasure skulking out of sight, seeking for shady nooks at the public baths, hot chambers and places which dread the visits of the edile, soft, effeminate, reeking of wines and perfumes, pale or perhaps right. painted and made up with cosmetics. <laughs> there, yeah. there is a little bit of dissing. Uh, pleasure totally yeah. <laughs> and especially of what it seems like like sensual pleasure yeah you know that's right yeah uh, um and in that way it is it does have that kind of christian element <laughs> and also the you know socrates at least as plato 
describes him has this idea that pleasure in and of itself, it's not something that you should banish from your life, but it's, it's a little bit animalistic. It's a little bit the thing that's going to pull you away from virtue in some way and pull you away from the good life because, and and I think this is right, it traps you. It's, he keeps saying you, I I enjoy pleasure when it comes to me, but you're a slave to it. And it's the being a slave to it that I think is the real problem. And pleasure, our our lives are, are kind of dealing with how we can both incorporate that into our lives without becoming too dependent on it. And I'm not good at that. I could use to be more stoic when it comes to that. Right, right. Without, And I say that without thinking that it's base in any way. Yeah. So one of the things that he's saying about pleasure is that that maybe helps explain to me why he thinks this way is that uh, it is impermanent and Changeable. It says pleasure dies at the very moment when it charms us most. It has no great scope, and therefore it soon cloys and wearies us and fades away as soon as its first impulse is over. Indeed, we cannot depend upon anything whose nature is to change. It's just unreliable. It's uh, capricious. But then he also says uh, that he holds the opinion. He says, and I'm different from other Stoics. That he says that the teachings of Epicurus are upright and holy. And if you consider them closely austere, for his famous doctrine of pleasure is reduced to small and narrow proportions and that the rule that we Stoics lay down for virtue, the same rule he lays down for pleasure, he bids that it obey nature. But it takes very little luxury to satisfy nature. And the Epicureans were about that too. You know, like they didn't want to be dependent on contingencies any more than the Stoics did, which is why they tried to cultivate habits that didn't require a lot of luxury and didn't require uh, a lot of things that were out of your control to happen. So I think this essay he shows after criticizing a school of Epicureanism also that the two are much closer than people commonly assume. Right. He says it's undeserved that they have a bad name, that they are an academy of vice. So having just said what he, he said about pleasure being just changing and fleeting and not something that you want to base uh, your life on, um, he, he contrasts it with virtue and he says... Uh, Do you ask what I seek from virtue? I answer herself, for she has nothing better. She is her own reward. Does this not appear great enough when I tell you that the highest good is an unyielding strength of mind, wisdom, magnanimity, sound judgment, freedom, harmony, beauty? Do you still ask me for something greater of which these may be regarded as the attributes? It's, it sounds like he's saying, uh, virtue. It sounds almost platonic. Like the virtues are, are, immutable and eternal oh yeah like they're this like beauty and and harmony are things to seek that will never change yes yeah i think that's right i think that it is what they think and i think it is very platonic It, it, it is in line with some of the later plato stuff where this is the only thing that is real that is unchanging the the real and the unchanging are the same thing so yeah i mean i think they are they go hand in hand in that way. It's just like with Plato, but he may be even more so less clear why. Yeah. 
with the Stoics. Right. You know, Plato has a, a metaphysics that I can wrap my head around that kind of justifies that, but there's no like allegory of the cave for Stoics, at least in the stuff that I've read. Right. It's funny when you first were bringing up the topic and said something about metaphysics, I was like, well, what, what would the Stoics even care about metaphysics? Like, it just seems like practical advice for life. But it's true. Like when you start pulling the, you know, the thread, um, you are left with this question of, okay, like, are we seeking virtues because these are universal truths to which we should all aspire? And if so, then what does that mean? Like there is some deep question there about, uh, that might be metaphysical that he just never talks about. Well, especially the alignment with virtue and flourishing or happiness or eudaimonia. Like, I do think that if you want to maintain that it's possible to be guaranteed a flourishing life by living according to what you have control of, living according to reason, which you love, (laughs) and living according to um, nature, uh, and that as long as you do that, you're guaranteed a happy life, it it does take a rational universe for that to uh, make sense, you know? And this is where I think the Epicureans, in my view, are more... I don't know, they're more accurate, they're more realistic in that, no, you might just get fucked. And Aristotle, too. <laughs> you might just get fucked. There's a lot of things that uh, if the roulette wheel comes on the whatever, two zeros, the greens, uh, there's nothing you can do. You're fucked, yeah. right? And the Stoics are strongly committed to the view that that's not true. That as hard and as maybe impossible to attain as the ideal is, it does exist, and the only way that that could be true is if the universe, at a fundamental metaphysical level, is rational. Yeah. And, um, and that that's my feeling about the connection between the metaphysics and the ethics mm. there. Yeah, but I, but I think you could abandon the metaphysics, slightly alter stoicism, maybe make it a little bit less certain about the connection between virtue and happiness, and then. It would, you know, it would still be mostly recognizable for what it is. Yeah. Okay. So, I mean, I really liked this and I, I, I think you've expressed this as well. Like I wanted there to be more concrete advice and, and I don't know if that's a flaw in, in, in this, like, I don't know if this is what, if it, I don't know if that's what he even cared to do, but I did wish there was a little bit more meat to the like, how how am I supposed to go about doing this? I don't know. Well, yeah, and it's not fair in some ways because this is uh, the 0.01% exactly, of yeah. the Stoic writings <laughs> right. that even Seneca has written, never mind like all the other Stoics. And I think they're good in terms of giving a good amount of practical advice Without also giving you a 12-step program or whatever, you know, like they don't pretend that it can be made that precise. I almost feel like that's more our fault in terms of what we chose. Not that there would have been an easy one to choose, but I think our folk, this essay's focus is on distinguishing between Epicurean philosophy and also kind of reconciling the fact that Stoics don't live like Diogenes, like in ditches and, yeah. uh, and don't scorn all the traditional ways that other people 
pers- you know, like all the ambitions and hopes and desires of normal right. um, non-Stoics. Yeah. You know, it tries to reconcile having those desires with uh, the Stoic view. But you're right. It's, there's not, how are you supposed to make yourself this immune to the, the, swing, the swings of fortune? Yeah. It does. He doesn't really say other than not to get too attached to pleasure. And maybe that's enough. I mean, I don't know. Maybe I'm being unfair. Maybe that is enough. Maybe just thinking about like not being attached is the a good step. Like, I mean, I m- maybe I don't need a list of of r- rules. Uh, maybe the point is to think more about how I just arrange my values. I, I don't think it's more that. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I don't think it's quite just how you arrange your values, but like say, say something that both of us have gotten addicted to all the wordle games, right? <laughs> you know, like these kind of trivial things that nevertheless are kind of fun. You know, would Seneca say, don't, it's a little unclear from the essay. Don't don't start getting too attached to that to the point where if you go a day with or a couple of days or a week without doing it, that's going it's going to perturb you. Yeah. You know, it's going to lead to inner turmoil in yeah. some way. And so I think you're always supposed to be a little cautious of things like that. Uh, never mind something like drinking or uh, drugs or um, that's part of it, right? Like you should start being suspicious when you start getting too dependent on things for your day-to-day happiness and security. Yeah. So, so, I mean, maybe advice, the advice just follows that you should, uh, audit yourself. I remember I used to do this thing every, I haven't done it in years. Every once in a while I would quit caffeine just to see that I could. Yeah. And, uh, and so I would go, you know, I would like, whatever i just for a month i'd be like no caffeine and it was miserable for the first week or two (laughs) like the first three days i'm just napping constantly um and i thought at some point well why why do this to myself like i can drink caffeine whenever i want like it's not like i'm you know i'm gonna never be (laughs) at a risk of being taken away from me right but maybe that kind of discipline is what i need to bring back to my life to just like practice um not doing certain things that I've become dependent on. No, not November. <laughs> no, not November. I have I seriously think that is con- the idea behind it, right? Yeah. Like I've seriously considered um doing something like uh controlling my phone. Like even I don't think I could ever do this, getting like a dumb phone. You yeah. know? Uh, so that I'm not uh like I I do feel like I am too attached. Me too. Like, and I think there's so many things like that. And then you realize like how much of my day I was like spending on ensuring that all these things are taken care of and that I have access to all these things that I've become like part of my day-to-day life. I'm like, this can't be good for me, you (laughs) know? And I've, and I don't do things like sober September or whatever, (laughs) or like, I don't do any of that. People will say, I wanted to go a month without drinking to, like you said, to see if I can. And it's like, well, 
I'm sure I could, but, but, but that's the wrong attitude. Like it, it is a, probably a valuable thing to, 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 to deprive yourself of things. Yeah. I'm probably a little better than, uh, or I used to be with my phone because I would have these devices that would disconnect me from the internet and all of that. Yeah. But you start to be less vigilant about those things. And all of a sudden you're dependent on it in ways that aren't transparent to you. And I think the Stoics are right to point out that this is the kind of thing that naturally happens to human beings. If you aren't focused enough on what's good for you. Right. Yeah. Well, Hey, maybe that's the takeaway. Gonna yeah. just stop talking to you on my phone. <laughs> stop texting. For one, stop. yeah, for one, I'm too dependent on no our friendship. More. I'm gonna list out my. I think I'm gonna do something like list out or time track like what I do. You know, like I I spend. That should have been my guilty confession. How much fucking time I spend just like watching YouTube videos, scrolling through Instagram or Twitter, playing those fucking word games. Like, that's like the bulk of my life right now. <laughs> that's. Just think of all the times where you just look at your phone because you have nothing else to do and you feel that little twinge of anxiety about, <laughs> like, thing, and you just want to distract yourself from it. Like It would be really good for, and this is, I think, so squarely within the stoic ideal of just dealing with that, un, like, that little bit of unpleasant anxiety yeah. rather than looking to sh- uh, repress it in some way or distract yourself from it, you know? Yeah. I'm inspired, Tambler. I'm inspired. Seneca has inspired me. I'm inspired, too. Um, Although I don't know what exactly. (laughs) Like tomorrow? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) What are you going to do tomorrow? We'll still be sending each other uh, (laughs) shit. I'm not going to not send you my my octortals tomorrow. (laughs) (laughs) Definitely not. I mean, that's fine, right? It's just, we'll we'll do that uh, in February. (laughs) (laughs) No octortal October. How about that? <laughs> no set of quartal September. But like so like <laughs> one by one. <laughs> All right. I uh, hope this was satisfying to th- those stoic listeners who wanted us to do this. And if not, well, you shouldn't be dependent on us doing a good, <laughs> that's right. a good podcast on it serves stoicism. You right. And that's on you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Join us next time on Very Bad Wizards. The greatest boss has spoken. Pay no attention to that man behind the curtain. Who are you? Who are you? A very bad man. I'm a very good man. Good man. Just a very bad wizard.